You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> It's Friday, September 11th, 2020, as we mark the solemn anniversary here in New York on the attacks of the World Trade Center, also the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I'm joined today by Raul Pell, our CEO and co-founder. But first, Jack Farley with the day's stories. Welcome back, Jack. Thanks, Ash. It's great to be here. So just the facts, Jack. What's happening in markets? Well, Ash, I woke up this morning uh, to a report from Hindenburg Research. It was a short seller's report on electric vehicle maker Nikola. And it alleged that uh, Nikola has made a series of substantial misrepresentations uh, about their own technology and their own capacity to deliver on their promises. Specifically, they cast uh, the report cast doubt on the battery technology. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they say uh, the founder and CEO, Trevor Milton, Um, claimed that Nikola was itself producing hydrogen and that it actually could produce hydrogen uh, 81% cheaper than competitors when, uh, in fact, this is not true and they uh, are not able to produce hydrogen at all. But what I was struck by was um, not so much the report, although the the report was quite a doozy, but by Trevor Milton's response, which is a video that he posted um, on Twitter. And it basically, he said, he, he basically said, you know, all these people, who are you know Hindenburg and, and all these other haters? They're haters, and when you're trying to change the world, like I am and like Nikola is, people will come after you. And it's funny because the last time I heard that logic was um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes uh, of the uh, now debunked and uh, fraud Theranos went on Jim Cramer when um, uh, Carrie Rue, uh made those allegations in the Wall Street Journal, um, which later was uh, turned into a really good book um, on CNBC. And uh, so the last time I heard that argument, it was just, it, 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 it struck me, um, uh, you know, that I saw that argument again. It's an interesting point. Look, uh, hydrogen fuel cells are really at the very core of this company. And so allegations uh, of misrepresentations in that particular domain uh, must be especially troubling to the uh, to the company. It's also interesting to me that here we are in the age of uh, self-filmed video and Twitter and CEOs responding immediately to short selling allegations by posting videos on social media. Definitely, for sure. So what else are you looking at today? Today is Friday. It marks an end of really a remarkable week of credit issuance. You know, this early September usually is uh, quite active as the, um, you know, the, the, the deal makers and traders are getting off of vacation. But, um, you know, we did $9 billion of leveraged loans. Um, you know, the private equity firms continue to pile into that market as well as CLOs. Um, and this week, junk bond sales reached $15 billion. Uh, that's very close to a record for the year, I think. Um, there was a lot of yield hunger. You saw a lot of investors uh, reaching for that triple C rated debt. Um, and, you know, Tyler w- Tyler Neville was on with uh, Ed Harrison yesterday, um, and he looked at a chart of uh, cre- credit default swap spreads, and he saw, he was like, look, it's, go- it's, it's been down, it's been down since March, and, you know, you do see a little bit of uptick, but really there's, there's no credit stress if you look at a chart. And 
I have a minor quibble with that. I, I think, yeah, there is just a minor uptick indicating a little bit of stress, but it, it's a minor uptick for now. And if you look at what's going on in the real economy, there's a tremendous amount of stress. Brick and mortar retailer Century 21 filed for bankruptcy today uh, with plans to shut down soon. It's holding an out of business sale in 13 of its stores. Um, so you are seeing a lot of carnage uh, in, in the real economy. Yeah. So for those of you who aren't from the New York metropolitan area, Century 21, a big off price department store here uh, in the New York metro area in New York City, kind of the place that you would go if uh, you got coffee on your tie before a meeting and you needed to pick something up. Yes, um, exactly. And so I was just uh, reading the, the the bankruptcy filing. It's got about 500 million in assets and liabilities um, and 1,400 employees. Um, so it's a real shame. Yeah. Another interesting aspect of that story is uh, I guess it was the CEO who was absolutely scathing about insurance companies not paying out claims, which may make us wonder about whether there are more potential uh, litigation uh, and claims against insurance companies for extraordinary losses related to COVID that have yet to surface. Oh, yeah, I, I saw that. That's a definitely an interesting angle. And the pain um, in the debt market is not limited to Century 21. Um, oil driller Noble Corporation's debt went on auction. Um, and it fetched a price of just one and a quarter cents on the dollar. You know, that, that's barely a penny. That means that if you held a credit default swap, uh, you would receive a 98.75% payout. Um, so, you know, I'm looking at this small little uptick at the credit default swap index. I think that's somewhat of a uh, lagging indicator. Jack, I know you're watching the news flow closely. SoftBank, big story. Any thoughts there? Yes. Well, I did have some doubts um, about the story, the fact that SoftBank was having a material impact and moving up stocks and moving down stocks. Now I have some serious concerns. I was talking last night to one of the biggest players in this space, and I said, um, you know, how sure are you that the the impact of SoftBank was uh, immaterial? And he basically said, I'm, I'm extremely sure. Um, you know, it was $50 billion of, it sounds like a lot, but it's ex um, notional exposure. It really was only, you know, $4 billion of, of premium. And that was, you know, it, that, that's on these eight high-flying tech stocks that are the most liquid stocks in the world, so really peeing in the ocean. So uh, I think it, it is the uh, the retail flow that is was driving uh, the market. Yeah, it sounds like the he said, she said on this continues. Oh, always. Jack, thanks for joining us. See you again next week. A pleasure. Thank you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Raul, another Friday. Welcome back. It's Groundhog Day. It's, I don't know where this, I mean, we, I only said, you know, I only spoke to you last Friday, and it feels like about a day ago. And I don't really know what's happened in the middle. I know. Well, it, markets have churned up, and they've churned down, and then they've reversed. And yet, it seems as though, as you say, we're kind of back in the same spot. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at it, like bond yields. I mean, they basically moved, I think, one basis point in a week. They looked like they were going to break down, and then, then they, they went up ahead of the auction, and they went down again. Nothing's happened. I mean, literally nothing's happened. Except there's a few markets that have moved. I mean, oil had a shocker of a week. And I thought that was interesting. And, you know, I've been following that relationship between things like oil and banking stocks. Banking stocks went lower, you know, but again, they were barely down a couple of percent by the overall, even though they had a choppy week. Um, you know, I, I, I just think at the margin, 
several of the kind of economically sensitive sectors are just easing off. And obviously, the equity market had, you know, a bad end of week last week and then started this week pretty badly and then has been chopping around ever since. So we haven't really got a lot of clarity. Is this just a little correction or is it part of something bigger? You know, a few other risk assets kind of moved with it. Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff, they all fell a bit, rallied a bit. It's kind of, it's one of those weeks where it's difficult to filter anything out and maybe it's just noise. I think we have perfect clarity about the fact that there is no clarity. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. You know, Raul, one of the things that caught my eye today here toward the end of the day, headline crossing, uh, Jeff Gunlack, Double Line Capital, now expects uh, that rates of default on high yield may double as a consequence of economic slowdown. Yeah, I mean, look, as you know, I've been following this story of insolvencies for some time. Yeah. And I think, you know, what the banks are telling us, what the oil market's telling us is growth is not picking up. We'll come on to Europe in a bit. It's not picking up. And the longer it stays negative, the more difficult it gets for companies and people to stay solvent, particularly without any stimulus going on. What's weird about the, the junk bond market is we can talk all day about defaults rising, but with the Fed involved actively in the credit markets, it doesn't price it. So it's kind of yeah. a really weird world where the only thing that gets priced is private credit, and that ends up with the banks. So hence yeah. why the banks have been somewhat weaker, well, significantly weaker than the rest of the market, because they're having to deal with this. They're you know, making record amounts of reserves, and it's still not clear how that's going to play out. So yeah. You know, I think Gunlack's right, and I've been following this for a long time, is, is yeah. bankruptcies are rising. Problem is, is it actually doesn't filter through to the market, so we don't have a pricing mechanism. It should price in the equity markets. And again, you know, I've talked about this almost week in, week out. The, the triple B equities, the most indebted equities that are closest to being downgraded, things like General Electric, AT&T, where all of these debts are concentrated, they've not done well. I mean, General Electric's had a really pretty shocking week. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. You and Mr. Gunlack seem to be on the same page. He talks about triple B minuses. Uh, and also, Rao, he's now tactically positive on the dollar. Well, if you are negative credit, you're basically positive on the dollar because the dollar is the thing everybody needs to pay back. So I get that. And, you know, I've been that. But, you know, again, the dollar has been hardly a trade. I mean, I'm looking at the chart of the euro. It's basically been pinned around 118 now for a month and a half, two months. It's so there's very little to get your teeth stuck into. Turkish lira has been weakening. We had a piece today with uh, Michael Nicoletis and John Floyd about the Turkish lira. It's one of the weak creditors. And I've been saying for a, for a period of time, it's the weak creditors that get flushed first. Right. So that's interesting. It's not really gotten out of hand yet. If it does, then expect Brazil to follow. If Brazil and Turkey are moving, then it's going to knock onto South Africa. And those... What's interesting is, um, I've posted a few times in the exchange, is that the correlation between emerging market currencies, European banks, US banks, Japanese banks, also the price of oil, the triple B equities, they're all basically the same thing. That's that whole slow growth, is this going to get bad by grinding on and on trade versus you know the NASDAQ and the everything's going to be a spectacular trade, which is the two trades happening simultaneously, which I've never seen before. Yeah, it's unusual. I mean, it does seem we we got tired of saying this in March and April, but without precedent, and now a recovery without precedent. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is, is you know, it, it, 
I don't know how this, where this all leads to. And I think that's why it's such a fascinating time in macro. Sure, there's whole periods of time when nothing happens. But beneath the surface, things are bifurcating so much that usually that means that one side or the other plays catch up. Is the crack in the equity market the catch up to the downside? Or is it just something, a smaller correction, and over time all the laggards catch up with the upside? And you know, everybody's watching this because this is the trade that's going to make the money. Which side does this does this go? Yeah. Yeah, very interesting point. You know, also talking about the recovery, talking about the structure of the U.S. economy. I just caught a headline a few minutes ago, just crossed uh, crossed Bloomberg. VMware and Twitter are cutting wages in anticipation of employees leaving the Bay Area. Again, I've said for a long time that this event is more deflation than people understand. I think people will lay off staff. I think that people don't need as many staff. I think the negotiating is going to be wages versus jobs. Right. I think that's there. Sure, there are some jobs that you know are hard to employ still. I think that moving people from one place to another is deflationary. I think rents are going to come down. I mean, I'd be staggered if you pay the same rent next year in New York that you paid this year. Um, everybody I know is negotiating down their rents. So I can only see those things as deflationary. Rent is a big part of uh, CPI. Now, you know, owner, owner equivalent rent is a very large part, and that's to do with house prices themselves, and they've gone up, partly depending. You know, it's a, again, I mean, the bifurcation between kind of the suburbs and the cities, something, you know, we've been talking about in Real Vision as well, it's staggering. But overall, I still think it's net deflationary, while... I don't know. I, mean, I, was, I had, a, had a conversation with a family office friend of mine this afternoon. He's like, I don't get the inflation narrative, and I don't really get it. I understand it, but I, I just don't see it. Um, you know. And I look at, I can't remember who posted it. I think it was Brent Johnson posted, and something I do periodically is look at all the investment bank forecasts for the dollar mm. and things like inflation. And when everybody's the other way, it gets very interesting. And almost everybody has got a negative dollar view. I mean, it's 100% of investment banks say within two years, the dollar's negative. And I think within one year, I think a few have got a few quarters of strength. I find that interesting when people are all one way and obviously market positioning's there. And I think inflation is the same way. I think everybody's looking at inflation saying it's going higher. Uh, I kind of like to take the odds of the other side of stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And if investment banks were always right, we probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was talking about this today with John Chirek in an interview on Real Vision. Uh, he's like the smartest kid I've ever met, right? He's he, he's just at a university and he knows more about macro than I'll ever learn in my lifetime. I don't quite know how he does it. But anyway, uh, yeah, talking about that and how difficult it is for something so easy like a currency – we kind of think we understand currencies because we use them all the time. And then when you try and forecast the damn things, they're impossible because they have what's called a Bayesian distribution, which means they have a shifting variable factors that apply at various times, i.e. it doesn't really correlate to anything, but it correlates to everything at different points in time. And people really struggle with that, and almost nobody forecasts currencies particularly well, uh, which is why, in the end, even the world's best currency traders tend to use technical analysis. It works better. 
Yeah, you know, interestingly, uh, Stan Druckenmiller yesterday, our old friend who's been on uh, Real Vision before, actually uh, in in a in a in a statement said that he's worried about the potential for inflation or also deflation. Right? I mean, it gives you just a sense of how unusual this time is. Uh, that uh, you know, even the like of uh, Stan Druckenmiller struggling to predict the directionality of prices. Yes, and also it's how you define inflation. Because you know, printing of money and the lowering of purchasing power of the dollar on a global basis is mitigated by the lowering of purchasing, purchasing power of other currencies. So all currencies have been falling against hard assets such as gold. Now, is that inflation? Well, it's one definition of inflation. Right. Are consumer goods rising? Some are, but most aren't. You know, rents are falling. You know, it's so it's really not clear what kind of inflation we've got, but we certainly don't have pervasive, you know, 1970s-style inflation, which everybody keeps talking about but never materializes. Right. I recorded an epic video. I'm doing a series about demographics, yeah. um, three incredible videos for the plus tier. I don't know when it's coming out, probably a couple of weeks' time or so, um, but I had an um, amazing conversation about that and how that kind of the demographic weighs into all of this. And I think it's just not understood by many. Yeah. You know, waiting for 1970s style inflation uh, has become like waiting for Godot. It's simply something that's been predicted time and time again and never materialized. Well, and my personal thesis on this is what happened in the 1970s was, yes, we came off the gold standard. So that changed the dynamic of fiat currency. But at the same time, there was, there was this confluence of events. The other big event was every baby boomer in the Western world reach working age at the yeah. same time. When you've got that many people, 76 million of them in the US, plus all the Europeans and everybody else, yeah. all buying their first car, their first suit, their first tie, their first table, their first chair, their, everybody at the same time with no offsetting generation because the war had knocked off the other generation you had this pig and a python, yeah. which was massive, real structural demand, and we weren't set up for it. So when you had, you know, we had trade unions and we had factories that were not able to deal with that increase in demand, and guess what? Inflation went through the roof. Yeah. And that was also accelerated by the fact that we'd moved off the gold standard, so there was less of an anchor. And that outcome is never to be repeated again, which was why it was the once in history inflation right. in a developed country. I mean, the UK has never had anything like it again. I mean, nobody has. So right. the flip side of that is we now have the baby boomers leaving yeah. the workforce and spending less money. And that's very prevalent in Japan where they're older, very prevalent in Europe where they're a bit older and becoming more prevalent in the US but they're offset in the US by the millennials. But the thing is, is the millennials at this point in their cycle, the millennials are around 30 now, have less income than any generation before in the last 100 years yeah. as a relative percentage. So they're, even though their size is big, their economic impact is not big. Right. But, and this is what's driving, we talked about a real vision, value versus growth as well. The growth equities are being bought in illiquid market by 401ks from millennials, essentially. Yet, 
active keeps underperforming because guess what all the baby boomers for the last 30 years have been accumulating pension assets in equity in active funds and they've been selling for five years now and they sell every single day and they will continue to sell for the next 10 years so sure you might be able to get a a pickup in inflation versus um in value versus growth or the active versus passive but the massive offset of this um, baby boom population is huge. Yeah, yeah, that's very well said, Raoul. This is a very subtle, very complicated, very nuanced issue. Um, you know, the other the other point, of course, is that women entered the workforce for the first time, and suddenly you had the intelligence of humankind effectively doubling in terms of uh, uh, well, also purchasing power of households doubled. Yeah, I mean, we don't get that, you know, and everybody looking for that thinks it's a monetary phenomena. Yes, it was some of it. But I think all of the analysis is spurious because it, we didn't get causation. We mm. got correlation. And we thought everything was a monetary phenomena. And I don't believe it was. Right. I believe it was a demand phenomena and a monetary phenomena. And almost no economist uses demographics in their models. Yeah. Interestingly enough, viewers of uh, Real Vision Daily Briefing, of course, know that Roger Hurst, uh, the old uh, Oxford uh, geography major, has been passionate about demographics. Yeah, Roger and I used to sit next to each other at Goldman. In fact, he came to work for me. I think he was at UBS beforehand. And he came to work for me. And one of the reasons we enjoyed working together is we saw the world in similar ways back in 1999, when he came to work for me. And at that point, we were looking at demographics saying the first of the baby boomers, the early retirees are going to start retiring and this is going to structurally change things. So Roger and I have both followed this story for, for a very long time. I would love to see what you two guys were like on a desk in the 90s. Tall. <laughs> yes, on both counts. By the way, for Real Vision Daily Briefing viewers, I am the only normal human-sized man on the editorial team. Everyone else is like 6'4", 6'5". Jack is like 6'12". We have an It's like a basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Roger and I are a little bit past our best form. Roger was a rower. You know, yeah. Roger, you know, I think he rowed at Oxford. Yeah. You know, he, he, he's, he's pretty good at stuff like that. I was never particularly good at that. Yeah. Uh, and Ed Harrison, who's also at least 6'2", has been commenting uh, about his view of inflation, citing Hyman Minsky uh, and his notion that effectively you have two different levels for prices. You have asset markets, uh, and then you have the prices for goods and services. And those are being uh, dramatically distorted right now by central bank policy. Yes. I mean, that's another thing. That's another definition of inflation yeah. is, is asset inflation. There's another thing I wrote a series of articles around in GMI is is also there is different inflation for different age cohorts. In an age of data, it's ridiculous that we have one basket CPI because yeah. your inflation rate is different to mine. It's different to a 30-year-old and it's different to a 60-year-old. Why we have this blended rate of inflation is ridiculous because we should all have different financial objectives based on the rates of inflation that we have. We don't do that. It's crazy why in this day and age we don't do that at all. You know, and I looked at this, I looked at certain things and what was prevalent in the 2000 to 2010 period, which was like the commodity boom when a million, you know, billionaire Russians turned on the scene and then the Chinese and the Indians. And I mean, the, the amount of wealth generation was just truly extraordinary. I looked at some baskets of personal goods. So I looked at, okay, the same pair of jeans that I bought when I was 15 years old 
if it was a pair of Levi's, they're basically the same price now as they were then. They've gone up a bit since. A basic stereo system, just a, you know, the simple thing you used to have in your bedroom at 15 years old, it's basically fallen in price. True. You know, a TV set fallen in price. So the kind of regular stuff that you had had either fallen in price or stayed roughly the same. Clothing had been very deflationary for a long time. But then when you looked at the high-end stereos, they'd like quadrupled in price. High-end watches quadrupled in price. So what had happened is as the rich got richer, they had an entirely different rate of inflation. And I was calculating it for a particular basket at 15% by like 2005, 2006. Mm. While for the poorest outside of the US because of the healthcare issues, people were seeing prices stable for a long period of time. Um, but again, when you aggregate it, it distorts everything. Now, right. that's not to mean that, that wages for people have necessarily caught up with inflation. I'm not trying to make a statement about that, but I'm just saying things are very different for different people. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. And Raul, just to put an exclamation point on it, I was skimming through uh, Mr. Druckenmiller's remarks as we were looking at this. Uh, he's predicting that we could have 5 to 10% inflation uh, in the years to come or 3 to 4% deflation. So, you know, that's really an extraordinary nightmare scenario on either extreme, 10% inflation, 4% deflation. My God, I guess the one thing that we can say for certain is that Stan Druckenmiller, long volatility on prices. Well, look, Stan is not particularly hyperbolic, but he yep. is one of those people, a macro guy, typical macro guy who frees his thought to say, what are the external possibilities that more extreme? What are the tales here? Yeah. And, you know, I wrote a, a, a long tweet about this a while ago, and I called them the three tribes. And there are three tribes. There's a bunch of people who are the one standard deviation crowd. And this, I wrote this tweet back in, I, I think it was like late 2019. And the the one standard deviation crowd basically b believe everything's mean reverting and there was nothing to worry about. Mm. And, you know, that strategy works very well for whole periods of time until it doesn't. And then they tend to get wiped out. Yeah. Then I talked about the others is the fat tail tribe. Oh, sorry, the long tail tribe. These are the pe people who believe in the tail risk, the most extreme events. And they tend to congregate in crypto, um, gold especially, and a few other places. They're the people who always think the, the, any downtick in the dollar means the dollar's going to collapse and everything's going to go to shit or you know, whatever it may be. Right. Or we're going to go to civil war. And those guys are usually wrong for long periods of time, and then they're often very right. right. <laughs> you know, the financial crisis was one, and this COVID was another. Mm. Um, and then there's what I call the the, um, the kind of fat tail tribe, which are the people who dare to believe that the world is not about one standard deviation, but is usually somewhere between one and two standard deviations, and then occasionally a huge event. And Stan is that classic guy. He spends most of his time in the one standard deviation bucket, 
But he sees it when it goes to two standard deviations, when something more extreme, and he doesn't mind getting involved in the long tail too. And what he's telling you is the distribution is fatter than anybody's understanding right now. And for a macro guy, that means opportunity. When everybody's huddled around the mean, there's usually not a lot of opportunity until there's a break point. What he's saying, as you say, is the standardized order of volatility is going to rise. And right. I think that's very interesting, even yeah. though the markets are ridiculously non-volatile right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Ralph, talking about those uh, long tails, talking about crypto, I feel like we can't keep this to ourselves any longer. Yeah, I mean, look, hot on the heels of the exchange, which is, I think, going to be a revolution for Real Vision. Those of you who haven't seen the exchange, that is the community platform where you can exchange views, post your own ideas, post your own videos, create your own exchanges, get involved in the conversation. It's epic. I mean, five and a half thousand people joined on day two. And the conversation's deep, meaningful, and rich already. I mean, there's some great threads in there. And as more of you come onto it, the better it's going to be. But some really incredibly smart people. So the exchange was a big thing. And that came on the back of the Festival of Learning, which was an incredible event. And our flag planting to say, hey, we're coming into education. Watch out. We're going to do some really amazing stuff. And you'll yeah. hear more about that. Then there was the exchange, which is, okay, we're not going to just send you videos but we want you guys to be involved in this journey. We're all better as a group. The hive mind, I call it, is much more powerful than listening to me blather on all day about inflation or insolvencies or deflation. But the hive mind, there's some really, really smart people in that. The next phase of this Real Vision journey happens next week, which is the launch of the new crypto tier, which is something I've hinted at. Yeah. Now, there is a crypto revolution going on, and you can see it in the exchange. The amount of interaction on, this, on these topics are huge. People get it. You know, when I started Real Vision back in 2016, 2014, nobody really understood what the hell I was talking about. In our very first trailer video, we had a picture of the Bitcoin symbol. That's how early we were. And as I've talked about for some time, crypto and macro have been doing this, converging and converging. And it's something I knew was likely to happen in the next recession. And we've reached the point where they've now merged. So that's why we're seeing an explosion of interest in Real Vision. I've got a massively increased interest. You've got a massively increased interest because these worlds are now the same world. It's not a different tribe any longer, but... We're trying to mesh together a finance tribe and a technology tribe. Yeah. We all speak different languages. Yeah. And so the reason we have, we're launching a crypto tier is because we need each side to learn each other's language. Yeah. Because this is the future of where it's all going. So I think a few people have seen on the exchange, uh, Sebastian Moonjava, who joined you. Um, you know, you're the lead editor on the, on the crypto tier. Sebastian's joined. And the idea is to basically democratize and revolutionize that space to bring that high quality, curated, unbiased, balanced, deep thinking into yeah. the crypto space that we do in the finance space. Yeah. Um, because basically the same spaces. Now, we understand that not everybody wants crypto content, and that's okay. So that's why we're doing it as a different tier. And for the first month, it's free for everybody. So knock your socks off. But we're going to do something even bigger behind that. And I'm not going to pre-announce it. 
But just to say that we are working with some very, very big players in the space to make sure that when we do launch it to the outside world and even within the membership, the cost will be de minimis. Yeah. Um, because we think it's very important that people get up to speed on this space too. And again, listen, if you can't stand crypto, if you think it's about to voodoo, that's okay. You don't have to see it. It's an opt-in. So you're not going to pollute your feed unless you choose to. But I urge you, I urge you to get up to speed. This is the biggest single revolution I've seen in the financial world since derivatives. And arguably it's bigger than derivatives. I don't know. That's a one quadrillion dollar market. So I don't want to over-aggrandize this. But what it is, is it's a structural change. While derivatives were an overlay on an existing system, this is essentially a new system being built. So- You know, we want to, you and I are passionate about this. We want to take people on the journey of understanding of what the hell this is all about. Um, you know, not only from at a, for people who are just coming into the space, just to get to grips with what it is, but the people who've been in the space for ages to understand what's that new project there? What is, what's going on in this particular area? Because there's so many areas. Um, it's hard to cover. It's moving so fast. There's money pouring into the space and it's not a flash in the pan. It's proven it time and time again. So, you know, it's time to embrace it. Embrace change. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And especially what you said about the idea of our perspective on democratizing this space, uh, unifying the conversation between those tribes, between the macro tribe uh, and the crypto tribe. And also having a safe space for the Bitcoin cra- space and the Ethereum space yeah. and the other guys. We don't want warfare. We want people to understand each other because you're actually all part of something bigger. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, and of course, this intra-tribe uh, things that are happening within the cryptosphere that we're trying so hard to bridge the gap on. Yeah, and look, in some way, tribalism's good. It means that people are defending their project because these are distributed projects which means they're run by individuals. So it's kind of like a democracy. You need the power of the people behind it. So there's nothing wrong with, and Santiago Velez in his interview with me really changed my mind about that. He goes, no, 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 it's it's a feature, not a bug. The more powerful it is, the more the democracy is involved with the project, the more chance it has of survival. Yeah. And the more criticism that is leveled at these, and the more they survive the criticism, the stronger they become because they adapt. It's an adaptive space because it's distributed and it's an open platform essentially right. in many of the projects that are going on. So it's a, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the people who are involved in these projects, they've got real skin in the game. Uh, and exactly as you say, it's not just distributed, but it's adaptive. It is a space uh, where, where things are changing in real time. There are code releases. We've never seen this before in finance, right? We've never seen uh, the ability to upgrade the, the system in real time in a way that uh, has these vestiges of democracy where people can weigh in and say, hey, listen, I've done a code audit. I've reviewed your system. Here's a weakness. Here's a flaw. Here's a potential thing that you need to think about. Yeah, and also... You know, this whole areas that a big part of the space sneer at, they won't do in 10 years' time is, is, is private blockchains. They're like, they're not distributed. They don't need to be. Mm. But what they are is the ability to completely disrupt the multi-trillion dollar supply chain. I mean, it's an enormous business solution for so many people. People don't understand any of this. And this journey, that's super exciting because yeah. it's like, it's the biggest macro theme I've ever seen. And we get to play it out in real time and be part of history. And, you know, the macro world itself, we're in history right now as well. So, you know, what an incredible moment to be alive.
Yeah. Um, and that, you know, and this whole crypto thing is the celebration of that. What an incredible moment for us and for everyone watching to be able to participate. Yeah, I mean, you and I were talking off camera. That, I mean, there's another revolution going on, which we've been very fortunate to be part of. And it's been very much part of the core strategy and business plan, which is that video is going to eat the world. I mean, every person now is a media star. Everybody has to have a presence on social media. Yeah. Um, and every corporation is now a media company. And the banks are pivoting to video. The asset managers are pivoting to video. The RAAs are pivoting to video. Um, stuff like launches for hedge funds and VC, you know, is pivoting to video. Everybody is pivoting to video because video is powerful. It's storytelling. It's immersive. And now you can deliver it at scale. People don't need to travel because of video. I mean, the rise of Zoom is because of video. The rise of Real Vision is because of video. So that whole thing has become massive. And, you know, we've been really lucky because, you know, anticipating this, we set up Real Vision Creative Studios, yeah, uh, which Damien runs, you know, one of the co-founders. And I'm blown away by the amount of people, businesses, financial services businesses, from JP Morgan to Refinitiv to some of the other biggest investment banks to crypto firms to RAAs to hedge funds that have said, hey, listen, can you make us videos? Can you make us a series of videos? Can you create a whole video channel? Can you do weekly news shows? And, it, you know, we've been knocked off our feet with the amount of business that's flowing in, and it's only going to get bigger. Um, you know, we're helping people distribute it as well, using our YouTube channel and other distribution um, mechanisms that we have. But it's it's like, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, yeah. it's just an explosion as everybody now realizes the power of video. Massive explosion is going to completely disrupt, displace, and reorganize business in almost every aspect of our lives. You know, I mean, this is the written word is no longer, and I'm saying this as a former literature major, uh, writing major, the written word is no longer the dominant method of communication. That and it never uses. was. It was always the human voice, right? We were storytellers. Yeah. And yeah. what video has allowed us to do, radio was first, television was second, and now video has democratized it, has distributed it, because television was concentrated and now we're distributed. That's yeah. part of what the exchange is about. Other people can make video. Let's not concentrate. Let's distribute content. Let's have a broad network of content creation that makes it so much better, much like we understand with Bitcoin. Um, but yes, I mean, video is is incredibly powerful. If Just think about investment banks, right? So I was a kind of star salesman at an investment bank. And there's other people who were doing jobs like me because you had to cover a bunch of accounts, right? Salespeople are expensive, very expensive. Now, you don't need any of that. You can have a star salesperson. Yeah. And if they're good on video, they can either get around the customers in groups or together in a way that is engaging. So you don't need all the rest of the salespeople because everything else is electronic orders after that. So it's an incredibly disruptive for the cost base. Yeah. I mean, the cost base of Real Vision. I was up in New York every two to three weeks, as you know. Yeah. I've now not been to New York for 10 months. <laughs> and I won't go again until the new year. And it has made no difference because I speak to you every single day in video. So I feel yeah. like I've seen you. I just don't have to smell you. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's perfect because I've barely left my apartment for five. Exactly. But, you know, so this is, I mean, we all kind of know it's disruptive. 
but it really is going to change everything. And so I'm really proud to be part of that and not only part of it, but at the forefront of it, yeah. of driving change and being part of that change. Uh, whether it's working with the you know, world's largest financial services brands or even small brands, up and coming brands with Real Vision Creative Studios, or whether it's allowing the, the democratization of all of this financial intelligence that Real Vision has and giving it to everybody. That's only video allowed that to happen. Yeah. I mean, and it's our mission is all part of this. And it's the same with the crypto mission. It's all part of the same thing. It's like, here, take it. It's for you. And we can do this because of video and yeah. the ability to do it at scale at not such a great cost. Yeah. And we have the benefit of having, you know, having done this for, for years and to have made every mistake, sometimes twice, and to have learned from them. And now that the beneficiary of that is going to be the crypto tier and also Religion Creative Studios uh, as well. Yeah. And, um, and then the other thing that's going on, there is a podcast revolution going on at the same time um, because people are consuming stuff on the move and they're not reading. And, you know, you've, um, you know, we've got the Real Vision podcast, which is very much like our YouTube channel. Then we've got um, uh, the Daily Briefing podcast. Then you're launching an exciting podcast as well coming up in the future, which is to bridge that gap really between where the crypto tier is mainly going to be, which is the kind of top two thirds in terms of knowledge base versus right. what are you what are you about to do? Yeah, so a, a podcast that is really looking for the other ninety eight percent. So you know we've uh, we've been working very hard at Real Vision to shore up our real core competency in this. Sebastian, who's a tremendously uh, knowledgeable person, I was joking with him the other day that he's so deep in the weeds that he could be a botanist. I mean, he is living in this space. But there's other uh, the other consideration, and I think it's absolutely critical, is that the more we talk to each other, people who are highly knowledgeable about the space, the more it becomes clear that there's this huge digital divide that's taking place in digital assets, in cryptocurrency, around blockchain and Ethereum and other protocols. The reality is most people are just baffled by this technology. They don't understand the first thing about it. They know it's interesting. They know that it has the potential to change the way business is done. They know that it has the potential to have a massive impact on society, but they just don't know where to begin. And this podcast is all about bringing that story to them. Exactly right. And that's, again, part of the education part that we're doing. It's another big part of Real Vision is we can now educate at scale. Huge change. Before we had to go to university, and now we can, yes, we know there's been online courses, but this is applied learning from the real world by people who really know that are teaching you. That's priceless. That was mentorship. Mentorship, you were lucky you used to get sit next to the, the legendary trader. And for one second, when he wasn't shouting at you, you'd be able to catch what he was doing. But this is different. A, they don't shout at you, which is really nice. It's different to a trading floor. Yes. But you get to learn. And the podcast is all part of that. So I think people are hopefully seeing this bigger world we're creating out there. You know, it's, it's, it's using video as the primary force to disrupt. And then it's education it's bringing democratization of intelligence it's pushing the boundaries to make sure more people are brought into the space more people can either make money protect themselves and not get screwed by the system itself it's it's you know I, i'm really proud of what we've done and, and i would add two points to that so so number one it's uh, it's applied as you said it is just absolutely this isn't theoretical this is something that we're looking at and the second point is real time 
right? I mean, we have this conversation at 4.45 and it's live by 6. There's just no way to get that uh, kind of dynamism from a university course because it's just going to be out of date, uh, you know, weeks to months later. Especially what, this, environment. I, this is something really interesting. I reached out on the exchange um, and said, hey, listen, by video, I just filmed up my phone, stuck on the exchange and said, listen, a lot of people come into Real Vision new and go, whoa, 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 what the hell do I do with all of this? Right. I said, let me know what you do, because nobody knows what each other does. Said, tell me what you do, tell me where you are, and how you use Real Vision, and how do you get the best out of it? Yeah. And so we've got video after video after video coming. So if you're on the exchange, check out, um, mm -hmm. it's called How I Use Real Vision, mm -hmm. and there's like... Uh, there's already about 10 or 12 of them. My guess is we'll have 20 or 30. I've got a competition running. You know, the top three that I'll, I'll choose will get um, $250 credit towards their memberships and upgrades or whatever. And then the top 10, you know, I'm going to have host a, a, an hour-long call with them about anything. Um, yeah. And we'll have some fun doing that. But the point being is is it's unique to hear how different people are using it. We've got university professors to Microsoft engineers in South Africa to students all posting on this, people in Brazil saying, this is how I use Real Vision. It's, you know, it kind of blows my mind. Yeah. You know, I know we've talked about Real Vision a lot today, but it's completely yeah. sincere. We're even more annoying about this, if you can believe it, when the cameras are off. Like, I just couldn't be happier about doing what we're doing. And at this time, uh, it's just a, it's just an incredibly interesting time to be involved in this. And we hope now with the exchange to be able to bring people into the interactive element along with us. Yeah, absolutely right. And let's be part of this journey together. It's not our journey meaning real vision, it's our journey, meaning the whole community. Yeah. And the more people we can suck into this incredible black hole that is real vision, that wonderful rabbit hole of learning, education, camaraderie, and that kind of global, broad, wide-thinking tribe that we're all attracting, that yeah. all have incredible knowledge and skill sets to bring in. Because it's quite funny because people go, well, I don't know anything about finance. So well, what do you do? Well, you know, I'm a systems engineer for XYZ. I'm like, you know, an atomic scientist. They're like, okay, well, can you tell us about that? You know, yeah. how does that apply? And what happens is people don't realize the skill sets that they've got that other people need. You know, one guy might be a credit guy because I don't understand anything about macro, but he really understands credit. So when I pop up a credit question in the exchange and they go, oh yeah, well, obviously I know this. I can help you out with that. It's like, thank you. The community, the hive mind, as I call it, is epic. And with the exchange only growing. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people are going to have their own uh, exchanges. So we'll have, you know, private exchanges, public exchanges. People will be able to launch their newsletters on the exchanges. There's going to be so much stuff. And we don't know where it's going. The point is we're not going to drive it. We're going to let the organic development of it occur in front of our eyes, terrifying though that is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of changes to come, I and mean, this is just the first iteration. Um, you know, there's huge amounts to come, and you'll see new launches almost every week about new features, new stuff, and then we. It's a process of getting feedback because when you're doing something as as disruptive and as big as this, you need to take in feedback, put it back out, new new developments in the product, take more feedback, build it out. So it's a journey. Don't expect anything final. There's no final product. There never will be. It's all part of iterating and improving, iterating and improving, and just making the whole experience better for all of our members. Yeah. Interact, in interact and iterate. 
Yeah. I mean, we, we have the saying within Real Vision, I've explained it to many people before, is, you know, our core hypothesis, um, our core methodology is MVP, minimum viable product, um, learn, iterate, improve. Yeah. And you just keep doing that cycle. Well, I think we're hitting the one hour mark here for the <laughs> God, Sorry, I got slightly passionate about all of this. I know. I know. Me too. Uh, Raul, any final thoughts? No, I mean, I just would like the markets to be slightly more interesting. I mean, I, I think there's some signals. I can't, you know, we talked about it the week before. I'm still waiting. So we sit on our hands, wait, try not to overtrade in the meantime. I think, you know, people have a tendency to want to push their narrative. I do. Everybody does. Just wait till the fat pitch before you put capital to work, because if not, you can get chopped around waiting. And um, and also, things do go, you know, things could be, you don't know. This It could be a correction in crypto. It could be something bigger. It could be a correction in the NASDAQ. could be something bigger. I don't know. It's too early to tell. And I don't like 50-50 bets. Yeah. Raul, Although I'm buying crypto every day, but that's a different story. Raul, waiting for markets to get more interesting. I suspect you will get your wish, my friend. I suspect I will. Meanwhile, Real Vision is keeping me interested. <laughs> Thank you once again for joining us. Yeah, have a great weekend, everybody. Sorry to have bored you about Real Vision, but you know, it's one of my passions. <laughs> great weekend, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.